Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret welcome Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost at the University of Pennsylvania, on his recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, written along with other former members of the Biden COVID transition team, calling for a new direction from the administration around COVID testing, vaccinations, mandates. He says new measures need to be enacted with an eye towards living with COVID for the foreseeable future. Roy Robertson also checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts, and we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Zeke Emanuel here on Conversations on Healthcare. Our guest is a respected physician, health advisor, and author. It's his latest writing that's making news. He was a member of the Biden COVID-19 advisory team, but now he is and his co-authors have gone public with a call for a new national strategy to deal with the pandemic. Dr. Zeke Emanuel and his colleagues just published their thoughts in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and it's been called a striking critique. What we want to focus on are his opinions as they relate to the public health sector. Dr. Emanuel, good to see you again, uh, and we'll get to the specifics very quickly. But first, what has been the reaction to your perspective? Uh, it's been reported that the Biden administration has ignored the advice. Well, first of all, uh, I would correct the idea that this is a critique. We did not write this as a critique. We wrote this uh, trying to be helpful. You know, the Biden administration came in in 2021, January 2021 with a good strategic plan, which they executed on. Um, but as the virus evolves and mutates, you know, our strategic plan has to be updated. And what we were suggesting is an updated strategic plan with an updated goal. The second thing I would say is whoever's been letting out the rumor that uh, the Biden administration is hostile to this doesn't know what they're talking about. Simply false. Well, thank you for that. And I think it's always important to reconsider it. Let me, let me say that uh, from the perspective of a reader, really appreciated the comments that you made and, and the recognition that time moves on and things change in a pandemic. And they change pretty quickly. Tell us a little bit about some of the key recommendations then that you've moved forward with. There's a lot of them we'd love to talk about, but I'd like to particularly hear from you about this idea that our data infrastructure for dealing with a pandemic like this needs a serious upgrade and reboot. Who's gonna take that on and, and where do you think we are with making that happen? Well, first of all, um, let me say that I think one of the most important things that we do in the set of articles is to emphasize that the idea that we're gonna eradicate uh, the coronavirus here is just false. Uh, and we're not gonna eradicate with our vaccines and we're not gonna get rid of it. Like many other viruses and respiratory viruses, whether it's rhinovirus or RSV or influenza, we're gonna live with coronavirus. And the real challenge is then to get us to a low state. We're, we're not ready for the endemic state yet get us to a low state of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, and then live with it in a new kind of normal. Second, that means we need to change our frame. Our, our frame can't be 
just to measure the number of cases from COVID or the number of deaths from COVID. We need a new measure, which the CDC hasn't used yet, but which needs to be uh, developed going forward, which is total viral illness burden. How many people get viral illnesses? How many are hospitalized every week for it? How many people die because of this cumulative respiratory viral illnesses that represent all the viruses that we confront. And that we say, there's gotta be a new threshold. We need to think of that like a bad uh, year of influenza mm -hmm. or maybe a little higher, uh, something like 70,000 or maybe a little more deaths per year. So that's the frame. That's what normal would look like you know, there's still plenty of things we can do to decrease the mortality and morbidity of those illnesses, but it's not an emergency. It's not mm -hmm. a pandemic, and it's certainly not 1,500 people dying a day, which is what we have from right. COVID today. So that's where we should be going, and I think that's an important reframing. And when we get to the endemic state, there aren't big surges. We're not getting a million new cases a day or 1,500 deaths. We can go about normal life, dine indoors, not have to wear a mask. To get there is going to require a lot of things. One thing is we need better information on which to act. And that was the whole point of the idea of the proposal yeah. regarding a data infrastructure. Right now, a lot of what the CDC relies on, um, frankly, are more projections and modeling based upon limited data acquisition, and not just for COVID, but for lots of illnesses. I mean, they don't even measure RSV. We need a whole new framework. Uh, and a system, I just got off the call with the senator's aide uh, who was interested in that data infrastructure. What would it take? Should it be at the CDC? Should it not? Right. We need a new, whole new government uh, arrangement so that automatically health system, physician offices, uh, labs download data every day. And we get a public display, non-identifiable data about where we're having outbreaks, what kind of viral illnesses are happening, how many people are ending up in the hospital, how many people are dying. Um, we really need that data infrastructure. Israel can have it, Britain can have it, we can too. I don't think it should be housed at the CDC for a whole series of reasons, uh, but you know, in the modern age with you know, Microsoft and Google and Amazon and Facebook having these data capacities and many, many other small startups, we, we really need to be able to do that you know, to be able to do that, it seems to me the one key word is that we need leadership. And I go back to our conversation we had back in July of 2020, where you were really focused in on what, what we're lacking is leadership and that the new next administration would probably need a year to sort of unravel all the things that uh, didn't get done. So I want to get back to this issue of leadership. It's not personal about the Biden administration or not, but you said maybe CDC is is not the, the best carrier of the torch. Who really will do that? And do you, you just mentioned some of the corporate institutions. Do you think that you're gonna see some of this leadership evolve out of uh, the larger companies and tech companies as well? First, I don't think that this kind of data infrastructure is not in the wheelhouse of CDC. Uh, their tradition, their culture has not been collect real-time data, make sure that data is accurate. Their culture has been quite different, which is get a little representative data and let's then extrapolate and model. And I think that's the wrong place to go. Uh, there's no substitute for real data. And I don't think their culture is gonna be the right culture. The point of identifying these corporations that have done 
you know, have real time, great data collection. I mean, there's real time. It's not like every evening they get a download. It's like every millisecond, they know where you are, which store you're walking into, et cetera. And they can automatically track it. There's not a person tracking it. It's done by their uh, computers. I don't think they're going to step up and do this. I don't think they should step up and do this. People don't trust them. But a public-private partnership that uses their tech capacity and their operations capacity combined with a public health uh, approach, including things like non-identifiable information, two-factor authentication, so people don't use, um, my data doesn't go out uh, without me approving it. I think those things are important. And maybe we do need a public-private partnership where the public sector guarantees certain things. We're not selling these data. We're not exploiting them for commercial benefit, et cetera. Um, And the private sector, as it does in many cases, helps build the infrastructure and make sure that it's, you know, up to 21st century standards and second, easily uh, updatable as technology progresses. Well, there are clearly a lot of domains that we need to live in as this pandemic continues and hopefully as we begin to suppress it. Uh, Part of it's up in the cloud with data and data infrastructure, and part of it is boots on the ground. And I want to pick up a little bit on some of your comments about the boots on the ground piece. Uh, You've talked about the need for much more of a public health workforce, uh, probably at all levels. Uh, You've talked about community health workers, uh, which we're so glad to hear you call that out. You've also talked about very specific groups like our school nurses uh, in schools, and and we would add to that the school-based health centers, of which there's also a national system with nurse practitioners and other healthcare staff on the ground in the schools. How are we going to move that forward? What what can uh, your audience or our audience do to support this call, and how do we move from this is a good idea to something that really moves us forward for whatever the next challenges are to come in public health. So one of the things that I've been calling for for a long time is data is really important, but data alone doesn't solve any problem. And one of the reasons I think that many of the tech companies have failed when they have come into healthcare is that they don't realize you need what, you know, we in the, the medical, an effector arm. Right. You get the information and then you got to do something with it and that do something, you know, the the tech companies can send you an ad, but that's not doing something. The doing something in healthcare requires people interacting with other people. They can interact virtually or personally, but they have to interact. And the best way to interact, the first level of interaction should be community healthcare workers who are responsible for a defined area, know the people in the area and can help. Uh, They can help on infectious disease outbreaks like COVID, but they can need to be able to help on other things. When we have severe heat waves or severe cold snaps, checking in on people who are homebound, making sure meals are delivered, uh, making sure when new babies are born that things are going well with the mother. There are lots of things that a public health workforce like community healthcare workers can do. Would be extremely beneficial in oh so many healthcare ways. I think that's the kind of public health effector arm that we need to begin developing. I emphasize school nurses for a whole series of reasons. I think we've uh, not paid enough attention to our kids and in particular our adolescents, their health and their mental health. And school nurses, we gather these students together. They can be very efficacious in terms of getting out interventions. Finally, 
if you got viral respiratory illnesses, one of the complications is it tends to exacerbate things like asthma and other things that can compromise children's learning if they have to leave school to get treatment and then stay out. Now, if they went to a nurse, the nurse could handle either him or herself or through telemedicine with a uh, physician or a nurse practitioner uh, treating these kids, they could probably be easily handled in uh, a short period of time and go back to the classroom and not lose those very, very important learning opportunities. Well, I'm very excited, uh, both the, the idea of a community health worker workforce. I'm not sure if you're thinking modeling that up on an AmeriCorps program where we would train people because we have sort of a disparate community health worker network across the country and certainly your focus in on schools were, were so insightful and uh, right to the point. But you also write about the need for an electronic vaccine certificate platform and you support vaccine mandates. Is it best to have students in school even if they're not vaccinated? I think this is a no brainer. We require all sorts of vaccines to get into school and COVID just another one of them. I've also written long time ago, I can't even remember, you know, <laughs> probably four or five years ago calling for the fact that we should require flu vaccines for kids. We have a lot of kids who unfortunately die of flu and we should, you know, flu vaccines far from perfect. It's definitely gonna get better over the years to come. I think mandating those kind of vaccines is really helpful for the country. I was uh, very happy to see your call out of the numbers of people who die from flu every year. It's always made me a little crazy that we don't emphasize that on a daily basis throughout flu season, the way we've been emphasizing COVID, because heaven knows those are pretty impressive figures. Uh, but I want to uh, turn to uh, this issue of treatment. I, I characterize the pandemic as the uh, shock and awe of the first wave and getting up testing and then the gratitude and relief that we had uh, a vaccine. Uh, but we also now have some treatments. And I know uh, your colleague on the Biden COVID transition board, Dr. Kessler, uh, is going to have to decide soon if the government should still provide the three monoclonal antibody treatments that are authorized for early stage COVID. I know uh, there's some research that shows two of them may be ineffective against Omicron, which we think is uh, the dominant variant. What would your best advice be? Well, I, I don't have all the latest data and I don't want to second guess Dr. Kessler, but it seems to me you got two ineffective uh, monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that Omicron is the dominant strain uh, of COVID going around and two of the antibodies are ineffective. And by the way, that was totally predictable. Mm -hmm. This heavy investment that the NIH made in developing monoclonals, encouraging monoclonals, we knew was going to be a problem way back in January 2021. Uh, when we were on the transition team, several of us met with some of these monoclonal makers and they were guaranteeing, oh, whatever the variant is, ours is going to work. It's not. Um, we knew viruses evade uh, the treatments that are directed at them and they mutate. And it was predictable these monoclonals will stop working. I think it's quite clear that providing one that works, Veer, um, I think is what we ought to be doing. You shouldn't provide ineffective treatments. That is called waste. Uh, and they're very expensive. By the way, one of the things I worry about, and I think we say this in the piece, is you've got oral antivirals. That's great. It's a huge breakthrough. But our experience with HIV and many, many other viruses is you use 
monotherapy, you're going to get resistance quite quickly. Right. You need multi-drug therapy. And so we're going to need many of these oral uh, antivirals. Uh, and we should be turbocharging our research and development on this. There are a lot of good promising ones in the wings. And then we need to combine them and test the combination to ensure that uh, or reduce the risk that we will have resistance to a combination of drugs. That seems to me clearly the strategic approach that we need to take. Unfortunately, I, I mean, I, I have to say I'm more than somewhat disappointed in the NIH being slow to get to that point. Mm -hmm. You know, just trying to think about the force multiplier of money that will be needed to uh, execute on this strategic plan. I'm wondering if you have a sense, do we have enough resources right now to undertake it? If we don't, what, what will be needed? And then do you think there's gonna be support in Congress, which is having so much difficulty getting things passed like uh, Build Back Better, coming to any consensus? What's your sense of the size of the uh, resources that might be needed and whether or not Congress is gonna be able to uh, push that through? Uh, Mark, first, I haven't uh, done a cost estimate of these yep. things. And what we have suggested is not a final strategic plan. It is part of a strategic plan. Second, let's keep our eye on the ball of how much COVID has cost the country. Trillions of dollars, right. trillions of dollars, okay? If we're spending a few hundred billion to avoid trillions of losses, last I looked, that's called a good investment. And we have to stop thinking of this as spending money instead of investing money. This is an investment. You have a data infrastructure. Data is valuable. We all know data is gold, right? It's valuable. Even if the government's not monetizing it, other people are going to get insights that are going to save money. And that's critical. So, you know, you ask me about various things that will cost money. Yeah, they're going to cost money. But... An investment costs money too, as long as it produces return. And if we can avoid serious lockdowns, if we can get to endemic COVID faster, it's gonna reduce the economic losses and that's like saving money. And so we have to see a, a different framework than, oh, this is just the government spending money. Some spending is just spending. A lot of spending is investment. And we need to differentiate those two. One of the key things about this spending on a data infrastructure, community healthcare workers, is they return money by preventing outbreaks, preventing problems that cost more down the line. Of course, we need a rigorous analysis of how much this is going to cost. But, you know, if you improve the indoor air filtration systems and air handling systems in buildings, we're going to have fewer viral infections. That actually is valuable from an absenteeism and a presenteeism perspective. One, one quick one, because you wrote a book about uh, great healthcare systems around the globe. And I, we've had David Gergen on, who's reminding us, Americans have to find American solutions. Tell me what you think the best country is in, in the globe in terms of dealing with the COVID uh, pandemic and uh, uh, where we might stand against them. Taiwan. Hands down. I don't think there's a discussion about it. Yeah. <laughs> Look, they're uh -huh. not <laughs> not a hundred miles off the coast of China. Right. They have a million citizens working in China. Right. By all rights, they should have been overrun with COVID. Almost nothing. Right. 
Yeah. Why did they do so well? Well, they had a data infrastructure. They know when people go to the doctor, the day they go to the doctor, they know what they're going for. They cross that information with the information of people coming back from China and uh, Wuhan, and they immediately identified them, tested them, began to isolate them. Second, you had a, have a country that trusts its healthcare and government, and therefore what the Minister of Health said People trusted, they followed, right? You don't have to have half the people say we're not getting vaccinated and many people not wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera. All of that makes a big difference. Very, very good response. I don't know if they're the best in the world, to be honest. It's a really good model. And if we were Taiwan, it would have been a lot better. Yeah. And a really good healthcare system too. Yes, it's very cheap. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cheap. Now there are many problems and we probably wouldn't change ours for theirs. Right. Uh, but you know, people who intersect with the, with the Taiwanese healthcare system, they sing its praises. It's true. Hospitals are kind of like graduate dorms. They're very bare bones. Uh, but on the other hand, and doctors work, you know, you don't get 15 minutes with the doctor. They're like a factory. There are lots of problems, but quality is very good and people are very satisfied and the costs are a third of our costs. Hey, one, one last thing. What do you think? COVID vaccine, any sense that we're going to... Look, I'm not the expert on that. I've talked to people who are holding meetings and trying to get the latest on where we are in that development. It's certainly something lots of people are looking at. And if we can do it, we will do it. I think that's an area the U.S. obviously excels at. Pushing it forward is going to be critical going forward. Dr. Emanuel is the Vice Provost for Global Initiatives at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. His website, EzekielEmanuel.com, and you can find him on Twitter, at Zeke Emanuel. Dr. Emanuel, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today, uh, for your insights and for your many decades of service to the country in healthcare. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? One of the most common deceptions about the safety of the COVID-19 vaccines stems from the repeated misuse of the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. It's an online database that contains unverified reports of potential side effects of the vaccines. The reports can be submitted by anyone, are not vetted for accuracy, nor do they mean that the vaccine necessarily caused the reported event. Submissions are encouraged, even when a person does not think the event was vaccine-related. The government reporting system is managed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration and used to detect possible safety issues in vaccines. VAERS has worked as intended, providing federal public health officials with the information they need to evaluate and address safety concerns that are so rare that they weren't detected in clinical trials. Expanded reporting requirements and intense scrutiny of the hundreds of millions administered COVID-19 vaccine doses have driven record reporting of potential side effects to VAERS. Social media posts, however, have misleadingly insinuated that the increase in reports means the vaccines are unsafe. 
The Post say that there have been more reports to VAERS related to the COVID-19 vaccines than prior reports over 30 years. More than a quarter of the COVID-19 reports are from abroad. But more important, experts say there are plausible reasons for why the COVID-19 total is so high. There are different reporting requirements for these vaccines. Because the COVID-19 vaccines are or were at first authorized under an emergency use authorization, there are much broader reporting requirements for healthcare providers. Experts told us other factors for increased reporting to VAERS include more inexperienced vaccinators administering the vaccines and being encouraged to report any side effect. Also, there's an emphasis at first on getting higher risk individuals vaccinated, individuals who are expected to have other health complications that are coincidental. The CDC told us while it can't always identify fraudulent reports, it had seen a huge increase in hoax reports to VAERS. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Chef Carl Gugendmos grew up as a kid in post-war Germany, he lived on a diet of organic and locally grown foods. Now he's the dean of the culinary arts program at Johnson & Wales University in Rhode Island, and he realized that he has a responsibility to teach the next generation of chefs how vital natural and simple ingredients are, not just to creating good food, but to the health of the population as well. He watched the obesity epidemic take hold in this country and decided to use his platform to create a new approach to chef training. He teamed up with a professor of medicine at Tulane University Medical School in New Orleans, and together they created what they believe is the first course in culinary medicine in the United States, teaching chefs and fourth-year medical students how to understand the synergy between healthy eating, good food, and good health. Our graduates from Johnson & Wales or any cooking school really have to take responsibility for the health and wellness of the people that they serve food to. So we created this program where our students are actually going to Tulane Medical School for an internship, and they work side-by-side with medical students and physicians working in the community, doing research, using an evidence-based approach to this whole idea of culinary medicine rather than anecdotal. So, in addition to learning knife skills, saute and poaching techniques, fourth-year medical students are given a lesson in food pairings, learning which foods are most poised to foster good health and to combat obesity in their future patients' lives. They identify ingredients as to their relationship to health. They then start basic introduction to cooking, from knife skills to how to saute and then they have to do research. And our students are there helping, being part of this whole program, working side by side with the medical students and learning and exchanging information and and techniques from each other. Dr. Harold and I have been out speaking about this. This collaboration between the chef and the physician is really unique. I think it's the first around the world, and we're getting more and more traction about this. A dean of a reputable culinary program teaming up with a medical school to train future doctors armed with the skills and information to assist their patients in healthier eating? 
fostering the development of health-conscious chefs who are trained to feed the next generation well with foods that can prevent obesity. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.